0: This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear a conversation on confessional subscription in the PCA, featuring Teaching Elder David Cassidy, Teaching Elder Nate Sheridan, and Teaching Elder David Strange. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as David Cassidy, Nate Sheridan, and David Strain help us consider unity in the PCA.
1: Well, welcome, brothers and uh, sisters. We're grateful to have this open dialogue together on a subject that I know is near and dear to all of you here in this room a topic of subscription in the PCA, which has been an ongoing dialogue. This is uh, We're stepping into a long stream of history as we have this dialogue, but it's important that we stir each other up by way of reminder, reminding ourselves of what the Word requires of us as those who have been called into ministry and the peace and the purity of the church, and also what it means to walk in love charitably, in differences of how we hold our standards, and walk in our standards together, especially us ruling elders and teaching elders uh, here in this room together. And I'm, I'm grateful to be on the stage with these two brothers, uh, both of which you have been dear friends of mine uh, over the years. And to be able to have this dialogue, both to recognize substantial agreement that these brothers share, but also in our differences, how we might be able to walk together uh, as we look to the future of the PCA. So brothers thank you for being here. I'm glad glad to be here with you. I thought it might be helpful for us to start to simply begin with some of those agreements. I, I know that we'll get to the topics that are really important to everybody here in this room. I will say we are this is a finite amount of time that we have uh, we won't put a bow on everything by the end of our time together but we will hasten through those areas where I believe we have substantial agreement and get to the places where we can we can have some some good dialogue why don't we start with just biblical warrant for uh, confessions the importance of confessions biblically speaking and why they're vital to the health uh, and life of a church how do we do that David
2: Yeah, so it's the the right place to start. Let me say first, I'm I'm really uh, glad to be here to have this conversation. Just for the reasons you said, I I want to demonstrate uh, how much unity we have as we value uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as it's expressed in our uh, creeds and catechisms. And I, I think it's helpful, actually, as we pursue unity to identify where precisely we disagree. There's a lot of heat and not enough light, and we want to try and bring some light and maybe take the heat out of the room. Uh, so that's that's been my prayer, that that we can, uh, as we pursue unity and, and laboring together, um, that we wouldn't talk past one another, but really try to isolate. If there are differences, what are they exactly, and how can we understand them uh, effectively? Um, so with regards to areas of, of shared uh, conviction, um, and particularly with regards to the biblical case, uh, I think I would simply argue confessions and catechisms, subordinate standards, are taught in Scripture. Um, You see it in the Shema, you O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You see it in confessional psalms that rehearse over and again the mighty works of God, who He is, what He's done in redeeming Israel and bringing them into the land of promise. You see it in uh, Philippians chapter 2 in the, the Carmen Christi, you see it in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Uh, Jesus is Lord is probably the earliest creedal statement uh, that we have. You see it in the trustworthy statements and sayings in 1 Timothy 1, 15, 3, 1, 4, 7 through 9, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, Titus 3, 4 through 8, likely uh, texts that The Apostle Paul is either quoting as existing, quote, trustworthy sayings or texts that he is proposing to the churches to be used uh, as guides and rules to help them. Uh, You hear uh, the Apostle Paul urging on Timothy the pattern of sound words, um, that there is a standard of received doctrine uh, to which Timothy is being held by the Apostle and to which Timothy is to hold others that he is training and raising up as elders and teachers in in the church. Jude 3 speaks about the faith. The definite article is important, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is a a body of apostolic doctrine um, that is founded upon, derived from, taught in the holy scriptures. Um, Remember that Timothy, Jude, Titus did not have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And there were waves of false teaching uh, 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 plaguing the churches that they served, all of them appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. And so the question is what does the Bible mean when it says what it says? The scriptures teach us that more is required simply than repeating the bald statements simply repeating the text. We have to ask not just what does the text say, but what does the text mean? And so from the beginning, I think the, the Scriptures teach us uh, to articulate in summary form in an agreed way amongst a body of elders uh, the teaching of Holy Scripture. So confessions are are biblical things, necessary uh, things taught in the Word of God. Do you want to add anything, David?
3: Well, I'll add my amen to everything that David's said. And that was an important part of his uh, GRN talk at the recent conference, and I thought he did a very fine job noting um, these matters. Paul said, we believe, and therefore we speak. There is a confessing dimension to what it means to believe in the heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And in John, uh, the words, if a person does not confess... That Christ has come in the flesh, let him be accursed. So the whole issue of confessing the truth of the gospel was present in the early church. Yaroslav Pelikan, uh, no stranger to the history of creedal statements, notes in his commentary, Brazos' commentary in the book of Acts, that our term for dogma uh, finds its usage there in the matters that were delivered from the, if we can use this term, council at Jerusalem, Uh, those matters which were then delivered to the churches to help them understand how to live out the implications of the faith. Uh, And so it has always been the task of the church to try to help our members with summary positions that tell us a people can have an airtight doctrine of scripture, believing in the Verbal plenary inspiration of the accepted canon of Scripture and hold to infallibility and still descend into heresy. Because it is summaries of the faith which help us stay clear about what the Scriptures are saying. And David and I, of course, rejoice to be confessional Christians in regard to the Westminster Standards, the fruit of 15 centuries of studied reflection, and we are grateful for that. It is um, perhaps the pinnacle of reformed uh, confessional faith, and I say that with all respect to the three forms of unity. I'm especially a fan of the Heidelberg, but the Westminster Standards have um, uh, a unique place in the history of the Reformation uh, as a way of consolidating and delivering in in many ways, a kind of compromise sort of format. Uh, The summary of what the scriptures are teaching in critical areas that was intended for Christians on the continent as well as in the UK. So very, very grateful um, for our agreement on those matters.
1: Nate? Yeah, David just... Let's let's pick up that thread just for a moment, only from the standpoint of the pertinence of confessions for our own day. Even specifically, we live in a anti-credal, anti-confessional age, and uh, the importance of confessions, particularly to our moment, the generation the Lord has placed us. What would be some of the reasons why we should be about the work of recovering? The doctrinal standards and confessionalism in our time, and its importance for practical ministry in the life of the church. What are as you look at the culture? Yeah, what would you what would you say?
2: Uh, I, I think part of the answer to that is is we we could take out um, sections of the confession and catechisms and say this answers to that problem, this answers to that problem, and that would be a really valuable thing to do, I I would just say that um, the the Westminster standards again and again have demonstrated their resilience and their relevance. Uh, You know, it's a truism, isn't it, that heresy, false teaching regularly appears novel until you scratch the surface and you discover that nearly every new error is really an old error repackaged. And as David just said in the Westminster standards we have the fruit of uh, the church's mature reflection on Christian truth wrestling with the scriptures uh, if you were to ask me one of the most useful things about the confession and catechisms for our particular moment in the church rather than the church speaking to the world but just for us as as Christian believers um, we 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 cannot afford to be biblicists. And by that I mean that we ought not to be seeking to construct our convictions as if the Christian faith was a matter of me, Jesus, and my Bible off, off, off under a tree someplace on my own. Um, uh, we need to read the scriptures with the church uh, simply because uh, if nobody else has ever said it in Two millennia of Christian reflection on the scriptures, chances are it's not right. And our creeds and confessions are guardrails. They keep us going in the right direction. They keep us within bounds of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. They, They help us be whole Bible Christians, not just thinking atomistically, but thinking synthetically. How does the teaching of the whole Bible when compiled on a particular area of Christian truth, how does it speak? And they model for us concision and clarity and brevity and beauty in the way that they formulate Christian doctrine. I think it is our enormous loss when we are unfamiliar with them, when their language, their formulations, their contents become assumed rather than celebrated and, uh, and and rested in and used when they stop informing our piety our preaching and our our pastoral practice and and are reduced merely to um, hoops to jump shibboleths uh, uh, to screen out um, people who don't quite fit at a in a credentials and candidates exam uh, that's a tragedy. Already happening, not waiting to happen. That's a huge loss uh, to us. So I, I think we have. It's it's like, it's like um, your grandma's precious china that is meant to be used and it's left in the cupboard gathering dust. We have we have family silver that's that's meant to be. It's not meant to just be an ornament uh, to be looked at from a distance. It's meant to be used let's not neglect these riches. Let's use them, and we will be all the better for it.
3: I'm just thinking about what a significant disadvantage I have without a Scottish accent in the midst of this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nate, in regard to uh, the current situation, I'll mention a commandment, an imperative from Paul, which is incumbent on every generation, which he gave to Timothy, At perhaps one of the most pivotal points in church history. If you think of the many pivot points, Paul is awaiting execution in prison, and he calls in 2 Timothy for that young apostolic delegate to join him there, and he gives him a charge to preach the gospel. But he also tells him not only to preach the word, but to guard the gospel. Guard it. It's always incumbent upon the church to not only proclaim the gospel, but to guard it. And then he says to Timothy, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, 2 Timothy 2.2. So there are multiple generations, Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. There is this issue of guarding the gospel and passing it down across the generations that is incumbent upon us. How's that done? Well, David mentioned in his first answer, This um, there's a, it's something of a mysterious phrase where he talks about his this form of teaching, to which uh, he had passed along to Timothy. Wish we had that outline. Um, but he, there was an outline of instruction, a form of teaching, which Paul certainly worked with, and you can kind of work it out, trustworthy statements, probably a fair summary of those things, uh, along with other matters, or the gospel that I preached, as he mentions at the outset, uh, with regard to Jesus, the Son of David, and so on. So we're guarding the gospel, and we're passing it on through other generations. But here's the second thing confessions are by their nature ecclesiastical and not personal documents. They are the considered conclusions of the church. And one of the things that we face, Nate, today, and you know this, and we all experience this, is what David described as somebody, well, I've got Jesus and the Spirit in my Bible, and I'll just go over here and figure it all out. Um, So not only are they going to try to ignore 2,000 years of church history, Uh, but they're they're going to um, do an injustice and do violence to the very nature of the way in which Revelation has been communicated to us in Scripture, which is to a community of people for the most part, occasional letters to individuals, but primarily to a community, and then a community of believers, the church gathered, comes to summary statements of that, and... um, This radical individualism, a position which I sometimes hear described as sola scriptura, and that is a great and grievous error. It is perhaps better described as nuda scriptura, uh, naked scripture, or perhaps solo scriptura. And um, those positions do not recognize the gift that the church gives to her people, our mother, through the centuries, that our mother has given to us in the consideration of what Scripture says. And beyond that, it reinforces this notion that I, on my own, come to my own conclusions about this. Um, now, we can talk about conscience later. That's an important factor. But sola scriptura, sola scriptura. Um, among the reformers did not do away with subordinate standards they were never regarded as the as the rule of faith Um, only the scriptures are the infallible source of revelation saving revelation and they're the final rule uh, final court of appeal in any dispute and um, only scripture has that place but the reformers holding to that did not reject out of hand creeds and confessions that taught them, they quoted them, quoted from the fathers at great length. And um, the position that you don't use that is another form of individualism, and it is more in keeping with the radical reformers than with the magisterial reformers. We're the sons and daughters of the magisterial reformation. And that's why we, um, I think, can speak today, about not only proclaiming the gospel, but guarding it and passing it on to the next generation. Critical issue today.
1: Let's uh, let's keep talking about that piece for just for a moment, David, that you just brought up. And both of you used the language of subordinate standards uh, to describe it. Uh, in even recent dialogue, part of the question that's been raised has been the question of sola scriptura, its relationship, this doc, this doctrine of sola scriptura with the confession, and at what point do we, um, are we utilizing the standards as an authority over the scripture and sacrificing, or what is the appropriate relationship more positively between the standards and the scripture? Could could you men talk through that? Just the dynamic of that.
2: Yeah, and and, and David, you. You hit on some of that with sola scriptura rather than nuda or solo scriptura. Um, We affirm, don't we, that our standards are subordinate in the sense that um, if the church can demonstrate they are wrong by the clear, necessary teaching of Scripture, by good and necessary consequences, we exegete the text of God's Word together, through the courts, so if we can demonstrate that they are wrong, then we are conscience-bound before God to conform our standards to the Word. Um, but uh, the Word itself teaches us to teach it. The, the Bible must be susceptible to rearticulation in other language, and it's part of our obligation from the Lord Jesus, to say this is what the Bible says and this is what it means. And not to say that um, individualistically, each one of us coming up with our own completely individual and mutually exclusive interpretations, but to strive to do so together. So in in the talk I did that that David references at the GRN, I mentioned uh, James Bannerman's extraordinary treatment of Confessions in his, uh, the Church of Christ, which, you know, we're Presbyterians. We ought to have Bannerman. It's a tremendous resource, uh, remarkable for his clarity. Um, and uh, he talks about confessions as instruments of unity, clarity, and fidelity. So we, we, when we say this is what the Bible says, it provides us a platform to stand together around a set of co- common convictions. Um, they, they enable us to do so in such a way that the world can hear and know this is what we think about what the Bible says and can check what we say against what the Bible says so that we're not doing what false teachers in the New Testament are often accused of doing, which is using underhand tactics, you know, dangling the bait and hiding the hook and, and all of that. You no, know, we can be upfront and transparent and clear. This is what we say the Bible teaches here it is, in a summary, out in the open for all to see and read. So it's an instrument of unity, it's an instrument of clarity, and it's an instrument of purity and fidelity. Because the church, in this generation, as in every other, is under siege. We are constantly being pulled in every which direction and uh, uh, tempted to stray from the rule of faith, from from the teaching of the word. and And so to have a standard upon which we are all agreed... Deriving from the Scriptures, not not standing over them, but deriving from them, is vital. Uh, you know, in the in the fifth century debates over the the deity of the Holy Spirit, the opponents to the deity of the Spirit mocked those who advocated for the deity of the third person of the Trinity by saying, "Show us a text." Uh, if you read the Socinian Rakovian uh, Catechism. So, the Socinians believed in the inerrancy of Scripture while denying the supernatural in, in every other respect and, and undermining uh, uh, gospel verities. In, in uh, the, the 19th century here in the United States, the, the, the sort of the Campbellite restorationist movement said, you know, no creed but Christ, no creed but Scripture, and ended up with an incredibly narrow very exclusive set of unwritten creedal uh, convictions brothers and sisters creeds are inevitable you all we all every christian has one the question is is it worth anything is it any good is it helpful is it biblical is it true and does anybody else join you in holding it or is it is it just yours alone I don't want to have a confession and catechism that's just mine alone. I want to stand with two millennia of Christian reflection on the Scriptures. Um, that That's a safe place to be.
3: No creed but Christ it turns out to be a creed. It should be pointed out. Uh, and the Christ that is held to turns out to be the Christ of the creeds. Among those who are claiming some measure of orthodoxy when they make those kinds of statements our bco notes the subordinate nature of all of this when um it says in the preface that our constitution is subject to and subordinate to the bible the bible is not part of the pca's constitution because the constitution can be amended and you can't amend scripture scripture is going to amend us and um, that is also the work that the church has going forward that we're always growing, we trust in our understanding of God's revealed will. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: the things revealed belong to us and to our children. There are hidden things which are known only to God. But our responsibility is to study, meditate on, hide in our hearts the revealed word of God and to allow that to transform us. Uh, this does not mean, however, that our private devotions um, are left without being informed by the teaching of the church. So I grew up Lutheran, and I was baptized, catechized, and confirmed in the Lutheran church. Elsie, yeah, it does, really. Uh, yeah, that's right. David said that explains everything, so. <laughs> a, a great deal, yeah. So, um, sanctification, what's that, right? Uh, so anyway. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, so, Uh, uh, I grew up with catechisms and this was vital in my dad discipling me. So I want to just come back to Nate's previous question a little bit on the current value. Uh, Our our catechisms uh, and and our confession are beautiful instruments to use for personal discipleship. And that is one of the things I hear people talk about often is, well, we seem to be lacking instruments that will help us make disciples. Now, of course, um, the standards on the surface of it, um, in places, can appear archaic in terms of their language. We I understand that. Uh, it can a- appear to be burdensome in terms of the massive amount of the content. Something like the larger catechism is not for the faint of souls. But the truth is, and I would especially appeal to the ministers here, to not fall prey to what David mentioned in his opening comment, which is to say that you treat the standards as something that is just a a kind of um, ticket you punch to get on the train. And then you ignore them. Uh, My fortress edition of the Confessions uh, uh, and and standards is is well-worn. And um, it is always under the Bible. But I love the larger catechism in particular. It's always really ministered to me. And I would just encourage us to continue to use these to help us grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. They point me to the Scripture. And they keep pushing me to the scripture. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the divines were asked for scripture references. They show us where this comes from scripture, and then allow us allow it to point us back to scripture. So that's a critical that's a critical issue for us right now. So these are areas where we have great agreement, um, areas of deep and profound unity and mutual appreciation. And the mutual appreciation, by the way, extends into our areas of 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 even where we don't quite see eye to eye in things. But unity and clarity, the unity not necessarily being uniformity in the way that this is applied and walked out, different issue, but the the clarity is there, the charity that should accompany our relationships is something that David and I want to live in very, very much. Nate?
1: Thank you, brothers. Let's move towards more the areas of disagreement so we can begin discussing those specifically. It might be helpful to simply define some terms. When we're talking about subscription, historically in this discussion, and the the PCA has had this discussion uh, several times before and thinking back to the 29th General Assembly defining these terms, but we've seen them arise again and sometimes used a variety of different ways online and in other places. When we say strict subscriptionism, what do we mean? When we say system subscription, what do we mean? When we say good faith subscription, what do we mean? Can you help us define those terms? And you're both David, so this makes it difficult for me. Uh, Cassidy, can you help me?
3: <laughs> so when it comes and – I, and, I, and I want to hasten to add that David, at, at the start of his talk, at GRN said um, – uh he pointed out PCA is a good faith or system subscription denomination that ship has sailed I think was the exact quote and he wasn't trying to argue for a a strict subscription position um, uh, so I, I want to one of the things where David and I might disagree is I, I think he got to a de facto strict subscription position by the end of his talk and we can explore that perhaps together but the uh, <laughs> Which well, that's why we all came, right? That's why we're all here. So, um, and 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 what that? Well, no, I mean, you know. But in in in, in essence, it's 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 this: we agree that the um, standards, which are themselves a consensus document, and to which we uh, take vows of subscription, have to do not um, uh, with every single proposition therein, but with the standards as a summary of the faith. That's a system subscription approach. A strict subscription approach would be that you have to subscribe to every single word, every single proposition, and that's the only possible way to proceed. And of course, there's a, our Presbyterian history, not just the PCA's history, uh, Presbyterian history, going back to the Adopting Act and so on, is very messy. On all of this, and uh, so the fact that we um, find a spill in aisle seven from time to time on this is is really not surprising. Um, this is just part of our heritage, and um, it's okay if somebody you know drops a jar and spills it from time to time. We'll we'll get together on that. These kinds of um, discussions are important for us because we want the standards to inform us in our ministry in the proper ways, and we want to um, guard the gospel and proclaim the gospel. Uh, Properly, so I would simply say that um, the essential difference is between um, uh, Saying that one has to affirm every single proposition and saying that one has to affirm uh, The standards as a summary of what the scriptures teach But David you may want to amplify that You know I do
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so so Maybe it would be helpful just to go back over strict system and good faith. System and good faith are not the same. At least, I don't think they are. So let's let, maybe this is an area where we we differ a little. But so I come, I I was ordained in the Free Church of Scotland, which is a really, really, really strict subscription (laughs) uh, uh, denomination. That is, you're not even allowed to express any difference at any point with the original uh, uh, Westminster confession only, not catechisms. Uh, So you only subscribe to the Westminster Confession. The catechisms are pedagogical and discipleship tools. So a little different. Uh, My understanding of strict strict subscription, so-called, in the American Presbyterian context is that it has always admitted of some scruples or differences with the standards, uh, but they were um, only at the level of minor scruples ever. Um, System subscription is is another model of subscription altogether that, as best I'm able to to judge, proposes that there is a system contained inside the standards that is less than the standards. Somewhere inside there is the system, and we subscribe to that system, but not to the standards themselves. Um, This allows considerable latitude, as as, uh, you can immediately tell. The difficulty also immediately appears. Who decides what the system is? Where is the system located? What is essential to it? Now, we do use in our in our presbyteries, in our book, we have the language of the system of doctrine. Um, but our approach in the PCA has been dubbed good faith subscription. My understanding is that it, it was intended to be something of a tertium quid, a, a third way between those two poles, so that uh, a candidate for ministry, say, could express a difference uh, at, on some point or other within our standards. And uh, the presbytery is to judge whether that difference is allowable and has three options before before the presbytery. The difference can be purely semantic. That is, uh, the presbytery may judge that you actually agree with everything taught here. You just wish it was said with different language. But you don't disagree with the with the message, with the doctrine, with what is being taught. You you would prefer it said this rather than that, but you're, you're content. That's a semantic difference. You may also have a difference of real substance, a genuine difference with the teaching of the confession that presbytery judges to be minor and uh, permits you to hold that difference. And then thirdly, the presbytery may judge you to have a genuine and substantial difference with the standards, but it may assess that that difference is substantial, that it is hostile to the system of doctrine and strikes at the vitals of religion, in which case if it comes to that determination, it will not allow you to conduct your ministry within their bounds. Um, uh, As things stand in our book right now, any difference whatsoever is to be declared by every elder in their own words, in writing, and is to be recorded by the court of which they are a part. That is a very helpful and very important provision. Um, And I I have no problem at all with that approach. All I would say is that I think when it talks about the system of doctrine contained in the standards, when it uses that language, it's using it in the same way that our confession speaks about the Word of God contained in the Holy Scriptures. It's not saying that the Word of God is some subset of Scripture located mysteriously inside the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. But it's saying, uh, it's using it in in an older sense, that, the word of God is contained in the scriptures in such a way as to exhaust them so that there are no scriptures that are not the word of God. And I believe that the system of doctrine is contained in the Westminster Confession in the same way. It's contained in the standards so as to exhaust them. The standards are the system. Um, so, so those are those are just in terms of definitions that that may be helpful to lay things out. I pushed beyond definitions into my own opinions, and that's where our differences probably lie.
1: David, did you want to weigh on anything else or clarify coming out of well, coming?
3: Uh, all I would want to add to it is is that um, we're founded as a good faith denomination. And that meant that from the outset, and I know there was debate at the outset whether or not that's, their there are brothers who sincerely believe that was not the intention, um, but the Assembly has decided time and again that uh, that is what we are, and that that means that exceptions um, can be noted. And I do agree with David that r- noting those in your own words and having those recorded is a positive move that um, not only helps the person making the exception, uh, to be precise about what they really believe. but also helps the presbytery in their examination uh, to understand what the man is, is uh, saying his exception is. Uh, so all of that is to the good. Um, there is not uniformity about what is an allowable exception across presbyteries. And there are some who find that uh to be an unfortunate situation uh okay well but it's the the attempt to try to say well here are the only exceptions which are allowable across the pca rather takes things out of the hands of the presbyteries which we don't want to do and um but i appreciate that that uh that kind of messiness to things in interminable in debates is the way somebody put it to me is something that we live with i'm not unhappy with living with um, debates about those issues because I do think such matters help us grow in our own understanding and grow in grace as well. Uh, the, The critical issue is whether or not a presbytery can say to a man, the exception that you've noted is one which we will allow you to hold and teach. Because there are presbyteries that are saying, even though we'll allow you this exception, we're not going to permit you to teach it within the bounds of the presbytery. RPR, of course, has um, cited um, some presbyteries for that position. And it's my position that if a, an exception which is taken in good faith, which is good faith that if um, my views change, I will come and declare the changes in my views, and also that you can assume that if I've not declared an exception that I in good faith hold to the rest of it, Right, uh, there's no subterfuge in that. Um, that if a person holds to those exceptions, we cannot bind his conscience and say that he cannot teach those, and uh, that he should be allowed to do so. Um, that is in keeping with a very important Reformation principle as well. So these are the points of disagreement: whether or not it's, um, uh, you know, what the exception allowable exceptions should be, and whether when they're allowed, uh, a person holding them will be permitted to teach them. And I think it's there that we find our places of substantial disagreement. Yeah? Okay, Nate. Well, let's let's pick that
1: subject up. Uh, let's talk about exceptions and differences um, that are uh, granted by a presbytery. Um, and, and let's start with thinking about uh, the presbytery's authority, to be able to say to a man, um, we we would grant this exception, but we would prohibit you from teaching this this exception in your your ministry publicly uh, at the church. Um, how how should we balance? Okay, the authority of the church, mutual submission to the brethren, our vows, this man's conscience his liberty of conscience. He believes this sincerely from the Word of God. How do we dance in the midst of those doctrines?
2: Yeah, don't ask a Scotsman how he dances. That's it's not a pretty sight. Yeah, with 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 a kilt. Uh, well, there's a lot to say about this. Um, First of all, I, I challenge the assumption that for a presbytery to require a man not to teach a difference that it assesses, maybe for maybe even just for local reasons, within the bounds of their own presbytery, could be uh, divisive or troublesome, is in some way binding his conscience. In fact, I would argue uh, the other way that, um, to require him, uh, or at least to allow him to freely propagate his opinion, which is contrary to the confession of our church, which the presbytery acknowledges it is when it says this is an exception. So it's it's contrary to our standards. To then allow him not just to hold it, but to propagate it so that more people agree with him contrary to our standards. Uh that's a, depending on the nature of the standards, that's, that's sowing the seeds of real problems. And more than that, it binds the consciences of all the other presbyters in the presbytery. Because we're not a group of individuals. We are accountable to one another. What happens in my church is your business. What happens in your church is my business. And I have a duty a duty of care for, my, uh, for the fathers and brothers in the Presbytery to ensure that all the things that are being taught within our bounds says what the Presbyterian Church in America says, the Bible says. And if you ask, what does the PCA say the Bible says, the answer is the Westminster Standards. This is our agreed summary of the sense in which we understand the Scriptures. So whose conscience is being bound here? It seems like we are sacrificing the liberty of an entire presbytery's conscience for the freedom of an individual who takes a difference from the standards of the whole church. That's one big issue. Yeah, you can,
3: go ahead, thanks. So, (laughs) yeah, so a couple of things here, just in response to this, we'll go back and forth on this a little bit, perhaps. Um, First of all, automatically imposing uh, a restriction on the, uh, a man or prohibiting a man from teaching is exception, which is, and you gave an important qualification in there, you know, you're talking about propagating something which is an exception to the standards, but uh, which has already been noted by uh, the presbytery to be not striking at the vitals. Um, it's more than semantic, but not striking at the vitals. It's not a threat, right? It's not as though he is industrially, industriously... Um, uh, setting forth teaching which is a threat to the church um th- if it were a true threat then the presbytery should never have granted the exception so automatically prohibiting a man from teaching his exception runs the risk of doing the exact opposite of what we were talking about earlier with regard to subordination of the standards and scripture it it puts the standards in a place where they are on equal footing with the scripture because you can't teach anything that's contrary to it at all, even if we allow you to think it, right? But you can't say it. So we end up with people being in a place where they are legislatively controlled rather than biblically compelled. And while I think the issue of a collective conscience is an interesting thing to explore, I think it's fair to say that from the Reformation, when Luther's standing before Eck, He's not really concerned about the collective conscience of the Diet of Worms and Leo X at all. It is his conscience which he is concerned about. And uh, standing on Scripture and conscience, it's not, it's not good to violate those. So we grant to people this ability to note their conscience and not teach against it. And that is a very vital development in the Reformation and something we want to guard carefully.
2: Yeah, and I agree that presbytery is not to say uh, you must teach against your conscience. I would simply say presbytery should be free at their own discretion to ask a man not to teach, to teach positively something contrary to our church's standards. I think that's a difference. Um, to refrain from teaching something rather than to tell him he must teach contrary to what he believes. Um, I I also think that if a man is asked by his presby not to teach it, we're not saying you can never say it out loud. You can never express that this is your opinion, uh, but it is a difference to what our church teaches, and I must express to you that this is the standard of the church and this is what it believes. uh, Let me just finish the thought. Uh, um, Earlier you said, you know, we, we can have a spill in aisle seven, you know, a jar can smash. That's okay, we can figure it out. I agree to a point. It depends what's in the jar. Um, you know, it, 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 might, it, might be a bigger, it might be a bigger problem than we realize. And, and that's why, actually, I think allowing a presbytery to say, we want you in our presbytery, but we don't want you to teach this point is more Catholic-spirited and more generous. Because I fear that if presbyteries are restricted and forbidden to, to take this step and say to someone, don't teach this, What will happen is we will have uh, open presbyteries, for want of a better word, and closed presbyteries, where if you have any difference that is substantial at all, you will not be admitted into the presbytery. Uh, I would rather have a third way where we might say, so for example, a presbytery might have been racked by controversy, division within its bounds for some years. Uh, over a particular area of teaching. And in order to uh, preserve the peace and unity of the presbytery, not because they necessarily judge this man heterodox, or even that they think that this difference is particularly problematic, but simply because in that local um, area of the church, this has been a flashpoint. They want that man to minister within their bounds, they believe in and want to celebrate his ministry, they believe him to be orthodox, but they don't want this point to be taught. I think presbytery needs to be free to do that. I actually think it belongs to the rights and duties of presbytery, qua presbytery, to be responsible for what is taught within their bounds and to set the limits and boundaries of uh, admission to the body.
3: Well, I would just note that preliminary principles state that it is the church as a whole and not presbytery, which establishes exactly what the qualifications are. Then presbytery acts on the basis of what the church as a whole has decided. I would grant that presbyteries have to make these assessments, but if we don't permit people, except in the most, and I would grant a a, a season of extraordinary difficulty that a presbytery may have been in, the the wisdom of of for a season refraining. But if we legislatively rule that you cannot teach this, then we have um, actually done a disservice to our confessions and a disservice to the man's conscience, and we're not actually in keeping with our own history um, as Presbyterians in North America and beyond. Thank you.
1: One question we didn't get a chance to to get to, uh, and we could have explored this further here, um, is a question that maybe, brothers, let's sit in and consider another way that we could maybe even further this dialogue. But the question we would have maybe spoken about a little further was, what would you suggest we do as a denomination where we are now to move the needle going forward? It was uh, fascinating to me to go back to the General Assembly, the 29th General Assembly, and reread. Um, the argumentation there and how much of the same argumentation and issues we're continuing to address. And so let's leave that as a question to continue to explore. But I'm so grateful for you two brothers, what you've shared with us today, and also how you've modeled both truth and grace. Thank
3: you.
0: You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.